This podcast is brought to you by Final Stretch Media. They gave me a voice. They turned my ideas into high-quality audio and video content. With their professional team, equipment, and expertise, they record, edit, and provide video and audio. Final Stretch Media has done a fantastic job with everything video and audio related for me. So if you ever find yourself in the need, uh, you can find their information in the show notes. This podcast is also brought to you by Quickly Brain Racers, the first ever live racing competition for the brain. Download their app and play live this weekend on an iOS device against the world. I have raced and it's really, really cool. So definitely check them out. You can find the link to the app in the show notes. Also, don't forget about our book, Thinking Critically, from fake news to conspiracy theories, using logic to safely navigate the information landscape. If you're interested in exploring how logic can be used to better help you to discern fact from fiction, the information landscape is perilous, but with the help of this book as your guide, you will always be able to find your way towards truth. It's available on Amazon today. Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today, we're joined by Dr. Robert Kreese, who is a professor in the Department of Philosophy at Stony Brook University, New York, and chairman of the department. He has written, translated, or edited over a dozen books on history and philosophy of science. He is co-editor-in-chief of Physics in Perspective and writes a monthly column, Critical Point, for Physics World Magazine on the philosophy and history of science. His articles and reviews have appeared in The Atlantic Monthly, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Newsday, and elsewhere. Today, we'll be discussing his most recent book, The Leak, Politics, Activists, and Loss of Trust at Brookhaven National Laboratory. Anyway, Robert, welcome, and thank you so much for joining. Thank you very much, Jonathan. I mean, it's a pleasure to have the chance not uh, to, to actually talk about the book after you know focusing on writing it for so long. Now I, now I can talk about it, so thank you. Oh yeah, absolutely, my pleasure. And I'm excited to dig into it because I actually, I found it a very interesting, interesting read. Uh, something that I actually didn't know about, even though I grew up in the 90s, and has a lot of relevance to actually what we saw today during the pandemic when it comes to distrust in science and how small little facets of a particular case can be blown out of proportion and then kind of the media runs with it, the public runs with it and creates this, uh, this cloud of fear and distrust of science. But anyway, before we get into that, I'm really curious to hear about how you actually became interested in philosophy and then also in science. Well, that's a long story. I uh, graduated from Amherst College, was interested in philosophy, got my PhD from Columbia University, PhD in philosophy, and I was interested at the time in um, in uh, German philosophy, Kant and Heidegger and so forth. But while I was a graduate student, I began writing articles about science, you know, partly to make money, but um, and I, I wrote them with a uh, my college roommate um, at the time, Charles Mann. I don't know if you know Charles Mann. He he's the he, now he's a renowned author. He he wrote the book 1491 and 1493. And but he and I, you know, college roommates, we started writing articles about science uh, together. And by that time, I had a job at Stony Brook University, and as a as a philosopher, and I began to see that. 
what philosophers, when philosophers did philosophy of science, most of what, what they did was, was far removed from what actually happens in science. That is, they're concerned with logical issues, relation between theories and um, data and theories and so forth. Um, and it had very little to do with what was actually happening when you have uh, people doing science at a, a laboratory in the middle of a community. And that seemed a very important um, issue to me. So I began working on, on, on that aspect of the, of the philosophy of science. So it's, um, you know, philosophers are, are professionally nosy. They love to stick their nose into other people's business. So <laughs> I became very, um, very interested in, in talking to uh, scientists at um, Stony Brook and scientists at Brookhaven. Brookhaven is just, uh, oh, I, sh I should say Stony Brook is on Long Island in New York. And Brookhaven is not very far away. It's about a 45 minute drive. And so I began talking to people there and people at Stony Brook about science and how science was actually done and the relation between scientists and the community and scientific uh, uh, scientific findings in the community. So that's that's what got me into it. And I began, oh, and I also wrote a history of Brookhaven's first 25 years as a national laboratory. Brookhaven was one of the first national laboratories. Um, national laboratories were established right after World War II. It, um, it, if this is the kind of thing you're 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 asking, <laughs> but, but if I if I'm going off on another subject, just stop me. But but uh, I like to talk about this, so it's uh, yeah, no, absolutely, feel free. Uh, so th this is part of the background. National laboratories were established right after World War II, because you know during World War II. Uh, the scale, the funding, the amount of people in science boomed by an order of magnitude. And the scientific instruments became too big for single organizations or, or like uh, universities or, or industries to afford. So special sites were developed to, to, to build and operate these, these instruments. And they included particle accelerators and research reactors, you know, reactors where... Uh, uh, which were important for for um, for carrying out certain kinds of scientific uh, research. So Brookhaven was was one of them, and it was built in the middle of Long Island on the site of an old army camp. And uh, so I began to after fifty years in nineteen ninety seven. It was fifty years old. So um, it was uh, people scientists there were looking forward to nineteen ninety seven as a chance to celebrate its first um, half century of operation, uh, had a celebratory spirit. And then this disaster happened, which is the subject of the book. So that's a long-winded answer. I don't know. <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. Yeah, that's, uh, that's super interesting there. So while you were in New York, then you said that it was actually the collaboration or the exposure to Brookhaven that got you interested in the philosophy of science. And yeah. then is there a particular science that you gravitate towards more? Or you, like, for example, like physics, chemistry, biology, anything, you know, something like that? Or is it kind of you're just more interested in the philosophical underpinnings of just science across the board? Like how it is that science works and why it is that we know things because of science? 
Well, uh, I was mostly interested in physics because that was Brookhaven's mission and Brookhaven had large particles. So it was, it was mainly a, a physics uh, um, laboratory, large particle accelerators and the physics of the atomic nucleus and so forth. But as I got more and more interested in that, the I also became more and more interested in, in the philosophy of other kinds of science as well and how the how these other the similarities and differences between the different kinds of uh, of, um, of science. I mean, you shouldn't talk about science with a capital S, but science is with a lowercase <laughs> s, plural. All right, sounds good. And okay, so philosophy of physics then, and what aspects of that particular subject then, so the philosophical underpinnings of physics, so that's the science that you said that you were uh, attracted to, um, what kind of questions were you exploring or have are you currently exploring within that domain? Well, first I wrote a history of the, um, my first project was to write a history of the first 25 years of Brookhaven National Laboratory, which was mostly a book about physics. But while I was finishing it, this episode unfolded that was the subject of the new book, The Leak, um, which suddenly exposed huge issues between um, the laboratory and the communities around it the laboratory and politicians, the laboratory and activists, the laboratory and the media, uh, and all of these um, uh, all of these things together. And, and so the, the relation between science and society became a principal focus, which is kind of the, 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 the tale of the book. Oh, very interesting. All right, so the incident at Brookhaven. So this happened approximately mid 90s, so like 25 years ago or so. And it's really just kind of one, the entire book focuses on this one particular incident. It's a small leak. It's actually in the title. And I'm curious as why, so you wrote a history book on Brookhaven. Why did you feel the need to specifically write this particular book? Why did you want to, you know, put in the time and effort to bring this to light uh, for the public, you know, 25 years later? Well, you know, as I said, I was just finishing the book about the history of the first 25 years um, when this, uh, wrapping up the book, when this episode happened. And at the time I thought, wow, this is, this is such an implausible thing. I could never write about it. Conspiracies that can't be stopped. Conspiracies that have terrible effects. Um, celebrities having access to politicians. Celebrities becoming politicians. Um, science denial that this is so implausible, no one would ever believe it. So uh, then 25 years later, I thought, no, I got, I got to write about this. This is happening today. So, so that's why, because all the things that happened at that time, you can see around us now. And I think in that episode 25 years ago, you can see them more directly and more, uh, more concisely and in one, one story, um, than than you can today. Very interesting. And all right, so let's go ahead and discuss exactly what happened. So the I mean, what happened, I guess, is in the title of your book. But let's uh, let's go into a little bit more detail. Okay. Well, you've just asked me to to about what the book's about, but but I will I will try to 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 summarize succinctly and stop me if I'm going on for for too long, but. So one of Brookhaven's major instruments, as I said, was the high flux uh, beam reactor, which is a research reactor. It studies things like uh, medical diagnoses and, and 
the structure of metals and, and so forth and biological imaging. And right next to it is a spent is a is a pool for where it's spent uh, fuel rods were stored. So when the fuel rods which run the reactor are are um, used up, they're put in this pool. Now this pool develops a a um, a radioactive um, substance called tritium in it, which is um, tr tritium is not not very dangerous. Its rays are stopped by pieces of paper. It has a half life of twelve point five years, um, and uh, but the pool is full of, of tritium. And there was a leak of, and that pool began to leak, but scientists didn't realize that for for about twelve years. And the leak was discovered at the beginning of nineteen ninety seven, January of nineteen ninety seven, and then now um, and and it wasn't. Uh, 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 hazardous to anybody. I mean, and, and then, um, as um, state, local, federal authorities, environmental protection agencies all looked at it, not, not harmful to anybody. Um, but when it was announced, it caused a firestorm among politicians, the media, anti-nuclear activists. And in the wake of that firestorm, the manager of Brookhaven was canceled. The director resigned. The um, the high flux beam reactor was closed permanently. There were calls uh, calls to close the the laboratory itself. You know, and this is a world famous laboratory that had uh, gathered four Nobel prizes. Um, changes to the the uh, contacting system for the United States um, for uh, National Laboratory System and so forth. So how could that happen? A non uh, 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 a leak that's non-dangerous causes this huge firestorm that almost closes the entire laboratory. Now that's what the book is about. And the, the further background is that the leak dropped into a highly sensitive environment. That is, people were, were very concerned. People in the community were very concerned about breast cancer at the time. This was right shortly after nuclear disasters like Chernobyl and you know Bhopal, which is a, a chemical accident in India, in uh, Three Mile Island. Um, and there were a number of other factors, increasing environmental awareness um, and concern, and uh, a number of other factors having to do with distrust between the laboratory and the community. So that's how, so the story is about how this tiny leak no health danger to anybody, dropped in this community, uh, dropped in this highly volatile environment, and so, and it explodes. So the situation explodes. So that's what, that, that how's that for a quick summary? <laughs> no, that was perfect. Yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of what I wanted to dig into was just explain a little bit more about exactly what the leak is. And, you know, what you hit on there too is, I mean, the public was never in really any danger whatsoever. I mean, the amount of as you said, tritium, um, and you go and expound upon this in the book, uh, or I should say recounting how the scientists are trying to make this known, is that the amount is less than you would find in your average exit sign within, within a building, like just a really, really tiny amount, and it wasn't really going anywhere either. It was kind of under the lab, it had seeped into it. And I know, I don't know, if, I don't think you had mentioned this, but the public was also very alarmed uh, because it was over an aquifer system, and I guess it was just the sole aquifer system, correct me if I'm wrong here, that kind of fed the uh, fed the area. So they were very concerned about the tritium getting into the groundwater supply as well. 
Yeah, you said a number of things that are interesting to talk about. One is the aquifer. I mean, groundwater is a very emotional issue. Um, it's our water supply. So if it gets polluted, then, you know, our water supply gets polluted. So, and Long Island has one aquifer, one water supply. So it, if um, people are, are incredibly sensitive to, to, to that. So it sounded like this was highly dangerous because it got into the, the water supply, but it was, it didn't go into any, uh, any of the water supply that people would, would drink. And it was also not, it, it quickly became below um, environmental standards. So that was one thing. Another thing, oh, you, you wanted to, um, you mentioned tritium. Did you want me to talk about tritium more? Oh yeah, the, the tritium really posed no threat whatsoever. I mean, like you had just said there, uh, the amount, well, I had given the analogy, and I think this is something that's used in your book, is that the amount of tritium that was actually underneath the lab that had seeped out of the pool was less than you would actually find in an exit sign. Or I think that was the analogy given. Like in your in a, a standard exit sign you would find like in a building. Yeah. Tritium, you know, is a relatively safe material. Hydrogeologists use it as a tracer. You know, they, they stick it in water in order to, to trace the groundwater because it's not, um, it, it's, it's not dangerous. Um, but the, and, and it's also used in, it, there are also uses uh, around us, for instance, in uh, illuminated uh, uh, watches, for instance. Um, it, it, it's used in, to illuminate the, the, well, before we had cell phones, we, we had wristwatches, <laughs> yeah. it was used in there. Exit signs after um, after the, the uh, World Trade Center bombing, the first one, um, exit signs were made that were self-illuminating, and the material that was used in that was was tritium, and the amount of tritium in the leak was less than that in one of those exit signs. So um, this was, but as I said, radiation is a very um, uh, groundwater is a very emotional issue. Reactors are very, um, are you know, symbolically laden. So this, 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 uh, th this leak, th this tiny leak, caused this huge firestorm because of the combination of these events. Yeah, the, you know, what you said there about public and radiation. I don't. Yeah, the average person when they hear the word radiation, they automatically gravitate towards ionizing radiation, which is the cancer-causing radiation. And not realizing that the you know there's an entire spectrum of radiation, and some of it is the ionizing or the cancer-causing radiation, where it's a high enough energy to liberate uh, liberate electrons out of a, an uh, atom, and that's what breaks down DNA. Or there's a radiation that doesn't do that, which is perfectly fine. So, for example, with tritium, uh, the tritium it has a very short half-life. And the amount that the radiation travels, because there's different forms of radiation, which is something I think the average person doesn't know. Some radiation travels very far, ionizing radiation, uh, which means that you, know, you, you don't have to be terribly close to it in order to feel the effects of it. But with tritium, it's a very, very small, uh, tiny, uh, tiny distance that it actually travels this particular uh, type of radiation. But the public doesn't know this, so they hear the term radiation and then just kind of they kind of go wild with it and say, "Well, what's going on here? You're giving us all cancer." And you know, said so the environment was uh, was particularly primed at that time when you had mentioned that uh, society and breast cancer um, was kind of the uh, the talk of the town. Well, 
another aspect is that scale matters. I mean, in fact, we're living in a radioactive world. Life evolved in a radioactive world. I mean, there's there's radiation from, from space that's constantly bombarding us. Three muons are going through our bodies, you know, every second. I think that's the number I heard. Um, there's radiation in the, the stones around us. You know, the um, the granite that the Capitol building is made of has a lot of uranium in it. That's and the amount of radiation that emits is more than is permissible in in for um, uh, atomic power plants to um, to have. So there are um, you know we live in a radioactive environment. The the issue is how much and mm -hmm. lots of it, it's it's like anything else. T tiny amounts are not dangerous of a material that large amounts um, that are um, are health threatening. So the yeah. so, so but but as you said, people hear the word radiation and they hear the word reactor and they hear the word groundwater and it sounds like a very very dangerous thing that's happening. So that was that was the issue. The, the the leak dropped into this very volatile situation with these very uh, symbolically laden aspects to it. Yeah, and I really like what you said there about the dosage and the poison, uh, because I think the average person doesn't really appreciate that. I mean, anything in a high enough amount amount can be bad for you. So, for example, I think the average person, let's say, pure purified drinking water. The average person would think, okay, well, you know, this can't be bad for me. My body needs water on a daily basis. I need to drink a certain amount. And the answer is, you are absolutely correct. You need to drink a certain amount of water in order to sustain yourself. However, you can overdose on, on water if you drink too much of it. So I think the average person doesn't really appreciate that the dose makes the poison. So um, in this particular uh, case with the tritium, yes, it's radioactive but in minuscule, minuscule amounts below the safety threshold, it's nothing to worry about because you're being exposed to these things. I mean, a myriad of various uh, various compounds on a daily basis. In small enough amounts though, your body can handle it just fine. And so it's really the dose that you need to be concerned about. And I don't think the average person really appreciates that. Yeah, right. It's. Um... It's uh, there. There are many things around us that are okay in tiny uh, quantities and and life threatening in huge quantities. So scale matters here. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So the public clearly was highly alarmed in this particular scenario, and I'm curious as to what the politicians did in this case. So there were a number of politicians that are in the book that you talked about that you had uh, you had mentioned. What did they do, and why did they do it? Well, uh, the, the, the whole story is about the interaction of different groups. This wasn't just laboratory in the community or laboratory of politicians or laboratory in the media. It was all of them operating together in this very uh, complicated situation. So there was a group. So the tritium the leak is announced anti-nuclear activists to begin protests. The media loves it because, you know, something having to do with radiation and reactors gives you the opportunity to run um, pictures of mushroom clouds and, uh, and skeletons and uh, have quotes from terrified people. Um, meanwhile, there, there were a few other, other key things involved, like um, Senator Alphonse D'Amato, remember Senator D'Amato? 
He was, do, yes. He, he was, he was going to be facing an election in a few years. He would be running against Charles Schumer. And uh, his environmental credentials were zero. L literally, the uh, League of Conservation Voters rated him zero um, for his uh, conservation efforts. And so he was looking for an episode that would something to, uh, some issue that might boost his environmental credentials. And here it was on a silver platter. So, so he became actively involved in it. And often for laboratories, the a laboratory like Brookhaven, which is world famous, four Nobel prizes at the time, now it's seven, um, a, a lot of famous research, famous discoveries, you'd think the local politicians would be supportive. But because of the local, because of the Long Island politics, um, they weren't. So, uh, plus you have politicians in Washington who, who, um, respond to um, the New York politicians. So you had this whole cycle of this, these whole set of factors working together. So uh, there's no, you know, there was no one cause. It was, it was a series of causes. Yeah, I just found it really interesting how the politicians kind of latched on to this incident to use it for personal gain to try to win re-election. I mean, I suppose it's not entirely surprising but remarkably damaging to the trust between the scientific community and the public. Sure, um, the, uh, but it's understandable. I mean, I was, I was speaking to one staffer for the Department of Energy and I said, how could this happen? How did Senator D'Amato from the legislative branch have such an influence on the executive branch um, when they're supposed to be uh, divided, because Tomato would call up, you know, sometimes every day to, to, to insist that something be done about Brookhaven. And so I asked the staffer, how is that possible? And the staffer was um, silent for a minute, and I could tell it was the sort of silence that was, you know, how do I answer this idiot? Um, <laughs> and, and then he said, it's called democracy, uh, meaning this is, yeah. this is how it works. Po the politicians listen to people. The um, and the politicians take action. The the media listen to report on what the people do and what the politicians do, um, and then the politicians, the bureaucrats in Washington, listen to the politicians. So it it was you know it was democracy at work, and that's kind of the chilling thing about this episode. Yeah, but where does science fit into this? Like the scientific community, who's listening to the scientific community? I mean, it's, it seems like there's some sort of disconnect here, and that's you know we're even seeing this today where why weren't the scientists being listened to? Like, I understand that the politicians are answerable to the public um, because that's who they represent, but somebody should be representing the scientific community besides the science, besides the scientists themselves. I mean, clearly they're advocating for their work and trying to disseminate the facts, but it's just not working. It clearly didn't work then. I mean, we had an issue, we've had an issue with it now as well. Why should people listen to, listen to scientists? What's the source of their authority? I mean, why should you, these are just people in a, uh, from outside, it looks like people in a bureaucracy telling you information. There's a certain level of trust and information and education that has to go on between, in the interface between scientific laboratories and the surrounding communities. And that's what broke down here. I mean, it's um, at one point, one of the, one person said to me, that um, it was like a catastrophe in the engineering sense of the word. 
that is, you know, in the engineering sense of the word, you have a, a machine that a complicated machine, um, and it, if it grows out of sync with the environment, all that it will take is a tiny tweak to have it to have it break down and everything go to pieces. Sort of like the Challenger disaster. You remember the Challenger disaster? All yeah, the yeah. things were set up so that all it took was one O-ring to you know freeze a little bit, and then the whole thing collapsed. Well, it, it, it was sort of this person was telling me it was sort of the same with um, with the uh, in the case of Brookhaven. Here was the scientific laboratory, and it became out of sync with the local politicians, the local communities, um, and even the media and so forth. So all it took was one thing, the leak, in order for for everything to to fall apart. Now, you, you, your question was, I think, how how do you prevent that? Well, how do you prevent going out of sync? With the, with the environment. Well, that, that takes a lot. It takes trusting relationships. It takes, you know, communication. That it takes all sorts of things. So what the book is about is illustrating what happens when catastrophes like that uh, occur. Yeah, so clearly the lab at some point failed to connect with politicians and the, and the community. And then there was just a broken trust, I suppose, uh, between, between these groups. And then the leak happened and it was just a firestorm, like you said. So that's that's too bad, but a a great way for scientists to look back on that and say, how can we how can we be better in the future, I suppose? How can we um how can we make sure that there isn't a broken trust between you know scientists and politicians or scientists in the community? Yeah, it's um, you know, during the course of this, I would ask people, what are the lessons? What do we learn from this? And I got about, and I printed that. I don't know if you saw that, but I printed at the end of the book. There's, you know, reflections and and mm -hmm. yeah. Um, and so, you know, I'd asked like two dozen people for what the lesson, what was the lesson here, and I got two dozen answers. So uh, again, it's because it, it was this complicated event. So some people, Martha Krebs, who was in the uh, Department of Energy at the time, said trusting relationships. That's right. Um, um, William uh, Magwood, who was a uh, also in the Department of Energy, said, "Well, you know, you can't fly below the radar. If you're a scientist working on with nuclear reactor, you have to make public what it is that you're doing. Um, otherwise, when something happens, you don't have the capital to to invest in 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 getting people to to trust you again. Well, that's true as well too. And again, there's you know a dozen more uh, uh, lessons to be learned. So the point of the book, I think, was to show." What what this this uh, you know malfunction is and how complicated it is and how many of the parts you have to pay attention to in order to prevent that kind of breakdown in the future. So it's sort of like holding up a mirror to to what goes on, so that you could see what what uh, what not to do in the future. The Department of Energy actually held a conference. Um, I mean, this event was so dramatic that the Department of Energy held a conference called Lessons Learned. And it invited a number of people from laboratories all over the country and other kinds of people. And the person, the representative of Fermilab, which is a national laboratory outside Chicago, um, spoke. And her first slide said, Brookhaven, there but for the grace of God. And what she meant, of course, was that what happened to Brookhaven could happen anywhere, um, even though Fermilab doesn't have a reactor. 
because, and what she, what she meant was, you know, Fermi Lab 2 is this complicated scientific place. It has, it resides amid communities of, of other people. And if things go wrong, you, if, if, if the laboratory isn't in sync with the community, then something like this could happen, could happen anywhere. So I think, I think this episode is important because what happened at Brookhaven could happen at every major um, scientific facility in the, in the 21st century. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's just a great example, again, and I, I've said this a few times, of why it's so important for the laboratories to connect with the local communities to help prevent that distrust that happens when you don't, uh, when you don't have open houses, when you don't have scientists trying to connect with, with other people within the community. And something that I thought was really interesting, too, that you uh, brought up in the book. So, you know, we talked about the politicians and then the media, but then there was movie stars who got involved as well. Uh, one of them being Alec Baldwin, who was kind of a big shot at the time. Uh, but yeah, let's go ahead and talk about that a little bit more because you have these prominent individuals such as a movie star who, you know, command such respect and admiration from the public. And here they are, here they are as these, you know, disinformation super spreaders where they're just out there spreading nonsense for personal gain, essentially, in order to, you know, be, to draw attention to them for a short period of time. Absolutely. And, you know, because celebrities are a boon to causes, especially movie stars are boon to causes because they know how to get cameras directed at them. They know how to, you know, act out, but still have people forgive them to say, you know, uh, off the wall things, but then get, you know, forgiven for them to, um, to be aggressive. They also have media contacts. And Baldwin was the, the chief one. He was the, the chief driver of this organization, this anti- a, um, Brookhaven Reactor organization called STAR, standing for uh, Truth About about Radiation, a little bit of an ironic title, but okay. And, <laughs> um, the, uh, and he had a lot of media contacts. He got, um, he, he got on, and this is one of the most emotional parts of this, this episode, he got himself and his organization on the, on the Montel Williams show and um, the show devoted to, um, you know, the dangers of Brookhaven. And he, um, and he said on the show that um, the cancer rates on Long Island were 200 to 300 times uh, normal, not true. Um, it was said on the show that Brookhaven made um, nuclear weapons, not true. And that Brookhaven was the cause of local high incidence of a cancer called rhabdomyosarcoma also not true. Mm -hmm. um, you look at the, the American Cancer Society, if you look on the webpage today, it says rhabdomyosarcoma, we don't really know what causes it, there are genetic factors, inheritance, other things, you know, radiation is not a, uh, a cause of it. Maybe x-rays in, in utero, but, but uh, not radiation. But Baldwin blamed Brookhaven for cases of rhabdomyosarcoma, and then brought an eight-year-old child on television to say and had this this child say that that the child thought that uh, his cancer was caused by Brookhaven. Uh, it, it's it's an emotional you know gut punch, but it wasn't true. And the show had an audience of nine million people. It resulted in hundreds of phone calls 
um, in, in support of Baldwin and lots of donations. So, you know, Baldwin, Baldwin, so meanwhile, the laboratory is full of scientists who have very little, you know, kind of public uh, um, recognition or, or context. So it was an important event. The celebrities played a key role as they do in conspiracy theories, uh, you know, around us today. Yeah, what I find particularly disturbing about this, and of course this happens today, is that it appears that Alec knew precisely what he was doing uh, because he didn't want to acknowledge anything. At least this is what I got from the book, is that he didn't want to even visit the laboratory or if he was to meet with the scientists, he tried to engineer the environment so that it favored his position. And it just was remarkably disingenuous. And he was clearly doing it for personal gain of some variety. Um, yeah, I just, I, I, I couldn't believe it when I read it. I mean, I guess I could believe it, but I just, it's pretty shocking. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, I, I talked to hundreds of people, I think, while, while writing the book. And most of them, I thought, most people I thought, you know, were, were, were really, really well-intentioned. They, they were operating, well, based on the information they had, they were trying to make sense of what was happening, even the activists. The one, one person I don't understand was, was, um, was, was Baldwin, because he knew, he was invited to the lab several, several times. He was, he was given the scientific studies and he ignored them. So um, he, he's, he's the one person who really, who really still baffles me. Yeah, I think, I think based off the evidence from what you said in the book, I think he was doing it knowingly, uh, lying and trying to get attention. Apparently at the time, and you had said this in the book, he was maybe thinking about getting into politics. So oh, yeah, I yeah. don't know. He, yeah, he was maybe just, perhaps he was just trying to get as much attention as he possibly could and to let the public know that he was on their side because he was thinking about becoming a politician at the time. So I, yeah, I don't know. Right, he was considered running for something. He never committed himself as to what it was, but the rumor was that uh, um, that was spreading was that he wanted to be a politician. Yeah, no, it was just reading through that kind of made my blood boil a bit because the amount of damage that he was doing, the like dividing the scientific community from the public, just driving this wedge deeper and deeper, and it seemed like he was he was fervent in his cause and that he would go to any lengths whatsoever in order to show, show the world that he was correct, that his position was correct. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't go into it here, but I quoted several things in the book, as, as you saw, several cases where he would just curse at scientists to their faces and yeah. disrespect to them, not listen to them at all. And uh, it was, it does make it, it still makes my, well, I, I try, I try to be dispassionate in writing the story, but, but um, it, it, it's very emotional when you, when you read the things, the kind of things that he said and the way that he treated scientists who were really trying to act in the public interest. Yeah, I mean, it, like you said, you try to be dispassionate, but it's hard when, you know, as, as a scientist myself, when, when you have the evidence, you have the facts and you keep presenting it over and over and over again, and it's quite clear that the other person does not want to hear it. And then even beyond that, they're not just protecting their beliefs, but then they're, they're protecting an identity that they build up for the community. And then it's just all the histrionics that goes along with it. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. Particularly, you know, when I got into that portion, when they had that meeting that was engineered by Alec 
and he wasn't allowing reporters in unless they were his own reporters that favored his position. It was just completely biased and engineered to benefit his position. And then even after the scientists calmly responded, saying, I'm more than happy to have you to come out, you can look at all of the data, et cetera, Alec was silent and just like didn't respond. <laughs> so yeah, there was, uh, but he was playing a game that he knew how to play. Um, yeah. Celebrities play and politicians play a certain kind of game and the scientists play another kind of game. Um, game's a metaphor, okay, but but yeah, you know, but the, for for scientists, community scientists look at numbers, and the numbers really matter, and they um, the, the numbers mean something different to politicians and to to celebrities. I mean, when the scientists began to try to answer Baldwin and the activists. They would do things that a scientist would do. They would they would write long letters to newspapers, you know, three and four pages long. They would have cited studies and so forth. And of course, the newspapers didn't print these. Um, whereas people writing small, um, short, two paragraph uh, letters with inflammatory language, that's the sort of thing that gets printed and therefore read by people. So. Um, so you know the, the scientists, the scientists, the, the, the things were stacked against them. The scientists treated it as a technical issue. The activists and politicians and media didn't. Yeah, it was the scientists looked at it more rationally. It was just a numbers, like you said, it's a numbers game. Again, metaphor with number or with the, with the uh, with the term game. But then. For everyone else, it was emotional. And I would say that most people, they react emotionally. They're not going to react logically. And that just goes back to human nature and kind of how we're trained. And that even has impacts to what is going on today. So something that I was, while I was reading your book, I saw a lot of parallels. And this is something that I came across in your your own press release for this book. There's a lot of parallels between what happened at Brookhaven 25 years ago and what we just went through with the uh, with the pandemic. Yeah, absolutely. Conspiracy theories circulating, conspiracy theories that are impossible to put down, conspiracy theories that are that cause damage to reputable institutions, um, uh, politicians, celebrities uh, having access to politicians, celebrities becoming politicians or uh, almost becoming politicians. Um, and uh, also another very important thing is to maintain a conspiracy theory, you often have to cast distrust on institutions that are reputable institutions that are important for the public safety. So what, what I mean is, you know, for today, it's, um, you know, if you really want to want to say that the election stole is has been stolen, you have to cast suspicion on um, companies that have uh, that make the voting machines. So like mm -hmm. Dominion uh, uh, voting systems. Um, otherwise, the conspiracy doesn't work. So you have to wind up casting. So you have to end up casting distrust on um on institutions that that you know are are for the benefit of society. Well, similarly, fifty years ago, to argue that the groundwater was dangerous, you had to cast doubt on 
the um, uh, institutions that are in charge of protecting the groundwater and measuring it and make sure that it's safe. So I have this, so one was the Suffolk County Water Authority. Well, the Suffolk County Water Authority declared, look, the groundwater around Brookhaven is, is fine, it's protected, it's okay. Um, and they even ran advertisements in local newspapers saying that it, that it was okay. They had, they had to do that. But so the, the cost of the conspiracy theory is sowing distrust on institutions that were designed to protect us and are protecting us. So that's what that's another parallel from uh, to today that I um, that that's important. Yeah, I, I was again. I was kind of shocked by the parallels between what happened 25 years ago and today. And something in particular too is the spread of false information through the media. You were talking about how the how the media they printed in the past, you know, the inflammatory rhetoric surrounding the incident that they didn't they had everything from the scientific community, but that's boring in a sense. It's not going to get people fired up in the in, in the sense that they want them to be. They want an emotional response out of them. And while we didn't have to deal with social media 25 years ago, you still had this issue of false information being propagated by the media because it was quote unquote, clickbait, clickbait back then. Now we have it today with the social media platforms and you just have this viral, viral spread of false information and then you have to deal with all of that. I mean, scientists had a hard time dealing with the fallout 25 years ago before social media. We had even, even a harder time of it dealing with all of this uh, given the fact that we had the social media aspect of it now on the internet to deal with. Uh, with the COVID, I'm, dealing, uh, I'm talking about the pandemic in particular here. Yeah, the uh, I was at meetings where the scientists would speak. They were very careful going over the numbers, the, the safety, the amount of radiation, the amount of radiation that's dangerous, the amount of background radiation. And then activists would come in dressed as mushroom clouds or skeletons, stand up on the table and scream. And guess and suddenly the cameras would, would veer over towards them. And guess who made the medium that, that night? Um, they, they would, the, the, um, the, the, those activists would, would uh, 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 were the ones who, 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 um, who got the standing, as they say, literally standing in this case. So, but that's not, you know, that's the way the media operates. It's not like, um, that's, that's, um, that's how the media, that's how the media works. Yeah, I guess I just wish it was a little bit different sometimes because, you know, particularly when you're dealing with, like, for example, with the pandemic, you're dealing with a global health crisis here, and yet you still have the media acting in the interest of whatever is just going to drive engagement. So that means conspiracy theories, anything to get a strong emotional response out of their viewership. It just seems remarkably irresponsible. And I mean, I, I guess, like you said, it is what it is. It's just how they how they operate. But I suppose yeah, it, I wish it, it was is. a little bit different. <laughs> well, that's again why I wrote the book. It is what it is. It 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 happened. It's democracy. Um, and but if you have a, if you tell a story like this, then and sort of hold it up, it makes you look at it and think: Is this the way it should work? You know, it's the way it does work. It's the way democracy works. But is it the way that it should work? Do we want our decisions about health and safety to be made in this way? That is where you know celebrities have have uh, the the closest access to the politicians. 
or do we want to have it have them made in some other way? So that that's the purpose of a story like this, I think. Yeah, and it's a really important question to uh, to explore, right? I mean, I know for me, obviously, the answer is easy, just because I I am biased more towards following the science. But for the average person, perhaps it's a more complicated question. Yeah, it's hard. I was at a I was at a meeting once where um, a scientist was on stage and he was he was going over the uh, you know as I said the numbers and what was safe and what was unsafe and someone in the audience stood up and screamed at him saying you care more about numbers than you do about people and huge applause from the audience that was largely activists from the community and the scientist was sort of. Um, uh, and, and and I was afraid. It was very terrifying. And the scientist waited, uh, you know, stunned, waited for a minute, and then he told a story. And the story was that um, he had been approached by his son to ask um, whether he should install seatbelts for his um, or uh, for his, his child, and um, you know, so safety belts for the. Um, for the um, uh, infant carriers. And he said, he, he told his son, look, let me look into it. And he looked at the studies and found that no, it was, it, uh, these were safe. Cause there have been photographs in local uh, newspapers about how the, how the seat belts for, for infants were, were dangerous. And there'd been one or two cases where they, they had actually uh, squished the child rather than save the child. But the scientists looked into the statistics, found that it was much, much safer and 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 told the um, told his son yes go ahead and install them, and then he told the audience um, I looked at the numbers, but I care about the numbers because I care about my grandchild, and that kind of connection between numbers and safety that's the kind of thing that has to be more um, made clearer to the to uh, uh, I, I think that's the kind of thing that would make episodes like this less common. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I suppose, again, and I know that we've hit on this topic a number of times now, but just the importance of scientists connecting with the local community and not speaking in terms, and I think your example right here illustrates a wonderful point that we shouldn't just be speaking in terms of facts or jargon or something that the average person doesn't really understand, that they can't quite look at as tangible. But if you weave these facts into a story with no technical terms or anything like that, that is easy to understand, I think you would get a better response from the public then. Yeah, and that's not something that scientists are trained in doing. I yeah. mean, and why should they be? You know, you go, you, you, you study science, you learn um, how to uh, analyze and integrate technical issues, and you arrive with, you know, technical understandings of things. Public has an entire different kind of understanding. It has to do with you know has a different kind of values that um, you know community safety health and 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 so forth. And th- so these two ways of of sense making technical and and you know value laden are not um, they don't overlap. And the the point is we have to make connect them more somehow. And it was the absence of that that was one of the major. Um, producers of this kind of catastrophe. Yeah, and again, while that happened 25 years ago, we're still 
as a sci the scientific community is not that great at it because of looking back at, because we're basically through the pandemic at this point, I know that, or at least the tail end of it, and looking at what we just went through with the pandemic and all of the nonsense that the scientific community had to deal with from the false information. You know, it was coined at one point an infodemic as well, along with alongside the pandemic. But dealing with that, but there was also a strong distrust from the public in the science that still lingers from the pandemic. I mean, I know a number of people who um, still think that the scientific community was lying to them regularly about things throughout the pandemic, where the reason why they feel lied to is because the scientific community, and this is just kind of how science is done, is they change their mind. Well, why are you changing your mind if you're not lying to me type of deal? And not really understanding that as new evidence becomes available, policy would change and you shift course because you want to make sure that whatever it is that you're doing aligns to the best available evidence. Well, if new evidence is coming online tomorrow that says that what you're doing today um, is not as good as it could be, then you're gonna wanna change course. And I think some people viewed that as lying and that was a failure of the scientific community to adequately communicate how it is that we do science. You know, the public was witnessing science essentially on the fly. Um, and it's a messy. It's not exactly the prettiest process. We change our minds. We argue as a scientific community because we want to make sure that the best decisions are being made. But when that is aired to the public for everyone to see, I, I think that that caused, unfortunately, a lot of distrust because we just didn't communicate it properly. Yeah, it's, a, the, it's ironic that the same things that make science go also make it vulnerable. That is, science is abstract. It's done in communities, the chess, uh, check and cross-check. It's open-ended, meaning uh, that it's able to change in, um, in, with new evidence. Uh, but these also are grounds for suspicion. If it can change with new evidence, well, maybe they're lying. If it's done in yeah. bureaucracies, well, maybe, it's, um, uh, maybe the bureaucracies have an agenda. And if it's abstract, maybe, um, maybe it's not relevant to experience or our lives. So the same things that make it work and make it strong and make it effective are also things that that, that can be cited as grounds for suspicion. Um, but you, you also mentioned another, another thing, which is, um, you know, vaccines and the anti-vaccine movement. It's not the reasons for the resistance aren't one thing. There, there, there are many different reasons why one might be suspicious of vaccines. There's a wonderful book that was written, um, I don't know, a few years ago called Calling the Shots by um, Jennifer Reich, I think was her name, who, who actually went and interviewed um, anti-vaxxers and found a, a whole array of, diff array of, different, of different reasons as to why they they were suspicious, there could be you know some self um, you know wellness reason. There could be suspicion because of um, uh, uh, you know breakdowns or, or bad medicines and so forth, and a number of other other things. Suspicion of the medical establishment. Um, so it's not one thing, and that that makes cases like this more um, more complicated. You can't, meaning you can't address them in one particular way. There's no tweak that you could do or argument that you can give that by itself will uh, fix things. Yeah, I categorically agree on that aspect of it, that it's multifaceted. But I think one of the underlying things that the scientific community could do to make this better is to 
because I see a common theme and that's like distrust that I don't know you, this is complicated, I don't trust you type of deal. And if we could somehow, again, with the scientific community reaching out to the public more, and maybe this is a, these are great examples of the need for more science communicators for people who, whose job is to promote, uh, primarily engage with the public and to communicate the science better. But just build relationships. That's one thing that I've kind of learned in over the years of studying this particular, you know, trying to communicate science and critical thinking and all of that is connecting, connecting with people is so important. Building a relationship. Everything that we do, like as humans, you know, surrounding relationships. So if the scientific community, you know, had certain members who specifically engaged more with the public, or even if the scientists themselves, you know, devoted whatever five, 10% of their time to just engage more, to build relationships, to increase that trust, I think that would really go a long way to towards mitigating a lot of the issues that we saw most recently during uh, during this pandemic. Maybe, but I want, I'm not sure it's the job of scientists to do that because again, think of today, the minute you say somebody stands out and says, no, vaccines are safe. Um, you, you wonder, well, is that, what, who does that person work for? What hospital mm -hmm. do they work for? What pharmaceutical company do they work for? In other words, the same suspicions can be um, directed against that person. So I'm not sure that it's, um, uh, you know, if you have a scientist explains something, well, that, that, why, who, who does that person serve? So I think an, a range of different people ought to be involved. I mean, for one thing, you know, sorry to get back to the, the, the book, but a, uh, a book that tells the story by a non-scientist might be uh, another effective um, uh, thing. I mean, I, I, I grew up, you know, before the internet, so I'm a dinosaur. So <laughs> I write books. So books, I think, are important. So, you know, a book is my, you know, is my dinosaur therapy. So I, I think drawing a showing a story like this that that causes people to think, wait, is this the way I want decisions to be made, that we ought to have decisions about our health and safety to be made the way that it was made here? Um, or are there are there better ways? So I so I think uh, so I think it's not just the scientist's job. No, I, d I definitely agree with you. I, I don't think it's something that just falls on scientists to do. Unfortunately, and I had mentioned this towards the beginning of our conversation, I don't know if scientists are being represented by anyone else except the scientific community because the politicians are in charge mm -hmm. of representing the public and mm -hmm. you have the public not trusting the scientific community Therefore, the politicians who are beholden to the public are going to reflect what the public wants. So who's who's on team science then other than the scientists? And you have very powerful influencers. It was movie stars back in the day, but we have social media influencers who are spreading conspiracy theories on TikTok, Instagram, Facebook, et cetera. And you just have all of this negative and for ne negative uh, negative press so to speak 
pushed towards the scientific community. And it seems like there's very few people pushing back that are in charge of that. And that the people that who are primarily doing it are science enthusiasts or members from the scientific community stepping outside and saying, hey, I need to connect more with the public because clearly not enough is being done. They're advocating for themselves and their work because they're not being listened to anymore. Yeah, the problem with conspiracy theories is that they're airtight. You know, if they're they're strong enough, they're airtight. Any evidence, contrary evidence, is able to be absorbed because, of course, it's evidence produced by uh, the conspirators themselves. So, you know, if the conviction is strong enough in conspiracy theories, then um, then what do you do? Yeah, no, it's it's a tough problem. Uh, definitely a tough problem, and a lot of work still to be done. Uh, for sure. I think that, like, what do you think from an educational standpoint, though, like, particularly from like an elementary school through high school, uh, not, um, not like college level, but like public education, do you think that we're doing an adequate job of explaining science and education? Do you think that that could help maybe for future generations to just kind of have a better understanding of how it is that science works instead of just kind of teaching people scientific facts, but maybe increasing science literacy in the form of, you know, this is what science is, this is how it works, and this is why it's important. Uh, maybe, you know, throw some critical thinking in there. I'm curious as to your thoughts on that. Well, um, I'm, I have thoughts on it. Um, but I feel like I'm betrayed, but I'm an educator. I'm a professor <laughs> at Stony Brook, but um, I'm, I'm about to uh, become a heretic by saying, I'm not sure the answer really is education. I'm not sure. It's very easy to say, how do you solve the problem? Just educate people, people better. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's, there's a more important problem, which is connecting the information about science with the goals of um, you know, health and safety of, of communities. And it's that, that ability to connect scientific data and, and values, that uh, the, the mismatch between those, uh, that's the key thing. Now, if I could jump to something that may seem totally different, um, <laughs> but I think it's the same issue. Do you remember that scene in Jaws where, um, uh, uh, as I was writing this book, I, I thought about Jaws a lot. Do you remember that scene in Jaws towards the beginning? It's about a 90 second um, scene where there's the mayor, the, um, there's the nerdy scientist played by Richard Dreyfus, and yep. then there's the, um, um, then there's the, the sheriff. The sheriff. sheriff. That's right. Yep. Uh, Rod. Um, um, I forget his last name. <laughs> I do too. But every everyone in the audience will know know his last name. Um, the the nerdy scientist said, "Look, there's a uh, there's a shark out there. I measured it and so forth." But he doesn't communicate very well. He's you know he play, it's very nerdy. The um, the sheriff is trying to figure out what to do, and the mayor is after all the mayor was elected by people in the community. The the local town depends on. Um, the visitors. It's a holiday weekend. Without, if they had to shut the beaches, nobody would come, and the uh, you know the, the 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 town would fall under. So the mayor is representing his interests. The the um, the uh, uh, Dreyfus, the scientist, is doing what scientists do and conveying the information. But they're at loggerheads. I mean, but you you feel for the mayor. 
you feel for Mayor Vaughn because he he's supposed to represent the financial in interests of the community and he's doing that. So yeah. it's a kind of, I show this clip at the beginning of my classes about science and society, asking them, um, you know, well, how would you, how would you fix things? And people think about it and they don't really have an answer, you know? And if you say the answer is better education, that doesn't quite do it. So the, the only thing that is effective is to make a movie like Jaws showing what, what <laughs> happens when you let this, uh, when you let this go. Yeah, because clearly, what happens after that scene is they open up the weekend. Uh, I think it's Amityville is the name of the island right. community or whatever. Right. They open it up. They let all the tourists come in. And what happens? Right. Somebody gets eaten on the beach during a holiday weekend in front of just thousands of people on the beach. And eventually the mother of the son that got eaten slaps the sheriff in the face saying, you knew about this and you didn't do anything type of deal. So there's all these negative consequences because the scientist wasn't listened to. And there are a number of movies that are like this. So for example, like The Day After Tomorrow um, is another don't, great science movie where don't scientists- Don't Look Up. Don't Look Up is perfect. More recently, Don't Look Up is a wonderful example of scientists being ignored. But, but, but And the, maybe- Maybe maybe they need to be more emotional than in their appeal to the community, because I remember, I mean, there is one scene in Don't Look Up where, but then he kind of is looked at like a crazy person when Leonardo DiCaprio just loses his mind and starts yeah. basically yelling at the network um, news anchors and yeah. anyone who is watching. And they basically just look at him like he's a crazy person at that point. But yeah, too too emotional. And too emotional. but, but, but to, to go back to that draw scene for a minute, what I tell my students is, you know, we have a privileged position. What is it? We're in the audience. We're watching the movie. We know there's a shark out there because we've heard the music, you know, the, the music tips us off. But what if you were on that beach and you were trying to figure out who's right, the person who's representing your interests? Um, and, and you may become bankrupt if the beaches are closed, or the scientist who's literally from off, from away, from a place nobody's ever heard of, yep. um, with information nobody understands, um, who can't communicate very well, who do, you, who do you side with? And the point is, if you, know, if you hadn't heard the opening uh, uh, sounds and hadn't, don't know what the, the movie was about, you really wouldn't know how to decide. So we're in a privileged uh, point in the audience so that's that's uh, that shows how difficult it is yeah that's that's a very very good point that you brought up there um i completely agree yeah what would you do if uh, you weren't in the audience and you were actually in that position obviously i'm biased as a scientist but if i was in the mayor's shoes i, I might have done the same thing not understanding all of this jargon being thrown at me and this individual that i don't really know and why should i trust him other than he's got some letters after his name and he comes from some sort of agency. Um, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a difficult decision. And then think about what scientific information would do. It, what, what kind of scientific uh, training? Understanding more about sharks? Mayor Vaughn knows what sharks are. He knows how dangerous sharks are, but he's weighing that with a lot of other you know, financial interests. And after all, people, he's in that position because people elected him. Um, yep. But I don't want to go go off on, on Jaws, but let's go to another <laughs> thing. 
Um, Enemy of the People. That's another good good play. Do you know Enemy of the People? I'm not familiar. No. Um, Ibsen play about a, a doctor who discovered there's a Norwegian town whose livelihood depends on the baths. A local doctor discovers the baths are polluted. They have to be shut down to be fixed for two years. And he tells the town and he expects to be celebrated because, you know, he's saving people. But since the livelihood of the town depends on the baths, they, um, they're outraged and they, they fire him and they kick him out and, um, and disaster ensues. But it's the same thing. It, it's the same thing. How, what is it that they understand what, what bacteria is, but, but what, uh, what would make that situation better? So that's, that's the issue here. Yeah, I suppose in both of these situations, if I was a scientist, if I was a scientist in um, in their shoes, so to speak, in both Jaws and this particular uh, case that you just mentioned here, is try to, I suppose, make make an appeal to the mayor or whoever's in charge of the town that would make sense to them, that would make sense, that would that would impact the people of that town and the future of it instead of just throwing facts and figures at them. Definitely there is a nuance there or a, a style to how you communicate that information to the other person that, uh, that is super important. Yeah. So, but anyway, Robert, it's been a phenomenal conversation. Um, it's been wonderful. Again, I thoroughly enjoyed your book, but uh, where can people find your book? Where can people connect with you uh, online? Do you have a website, do you have social media? Um, I, I hope by this time, well, I think you could probably just Google crease leak and maybe MIT press and you will find it. But, uh, so I don't think it should be too hard to find on the internet. Um, probably all, I hope all reputable <laughs> bookstores have it. Um, robertpcrease.com is my, um, is my webpage, not active on social media, really, but I know it's something I should learn. But as I told you, I'm a dinosaur, you know, <laughs> with my dinosaur therapy, but um, uh, it should be, the book should be, I hope is easy enough to find. All right, wonderful. Anyway, for all of those of you who are stopping by, thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I, I know that I sure did. Uh, anyway, definitely go ahead and hit that like button, share, Please reach out, send us any sort of feedback, and stay tuned for more great content coming your way. Take care. Thanks, Jonathan.